WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the podcast where two best friends talk about comics with the people who make them. I'm Dan Grote. And I'm Matt Laswitz. And this week's guests are the co-creators of the AWA series Devil's Highway. Uh, in addition to their own respective works, please welcome Benjamin Percy and uh, Brent Schoonover. Hello, gentlemen. Hello. Hello. Thanks for having us. Home run on the last name of mine, too. I was fully anticipating Schoonover, and I was like, but you nailed it. <laughs> always, always, always glad to hear when we take a wild stab. Uh, names, <laughs> one of the hardest things to get right. Yeah. As a, as a side note, uh, Brent, I think, knows this, but he might have forgotten. Uh, I have a movie coming out this summer, yeah. and when I was on set, uh, I had to train the kids who are in the film to say his last name correctly uh, <laughs> because there's a kid named Brent Scootover who breaks into a, a kindergarten classroom he uh you know busts the window and mm-hmm. so they're complaining about him and so they they kept you know reading the lines like Schoonover Schoon they just couldn't get it right I was no. you know just off camera I was like Schoonover Schoonover get it right <laughs> So, this summer, we'll all be able to enjoy the correct pronunciation. Love it. Love it. <laughs> On the silver screen. <laughs> nice. Uh, so uh, we'll, we'll, we'll start with the typical uh, first-time guest question. Oh, listeners, by the way, my voice is shot. So uh, just forgive me. I'm a Peter Brady all over the place for the next hour. But uh, yeah, so first question, what are some of the first uh, comics that either of you remembers reading? Uh, Brent, why do you start? Oh God! Uh, I actually, this is cool. Um, the Incredible Hulk, Peter David run. I think it was three eighty one, and it was uh, Mister Fix It smacking uh, Spider Man off of uh, in Las Vegas, like off a building in Las Vegas. I bought it at uh, Wall Drug in South Dakota, which is this hokey little tourist trap that you can go to in South Dakota. It's just a weird little place in the Midwest for. Um, and uh, I got that when I was like six or probably seven years old. And last some, uh, last year during spring break, we took my girls to uh, to Wall Drug on a trip to South Dakota to see Mount Rushmore. And uh, I brought it with me and I took a picture of me outside of Wall Drug with the, with the comic book. So it was kind of cool to bring it all full circle. So, but uh, yeah, that was my first, first comic. Nice. I'm not sure what the first comic is that I bought. This is the oldest comic that I own. Oh, man thing. Nice. Number nine. <laughs> and, you know, I grew up moving around quite a bit, but first six years of my life were spent in Crow, Oregon. And that is such a small town that we didn't have a grocery store. We had a mercantile. And um, my mom used to deposit me below the spinner rack in the mercantile. While she shopped and she'd, you know, trundle up and down the wide board floors with her with her cart. And and you know, I was just there pulling down comics, reading them. And if I was good, I got to take home one. <laughs> um, and I read and reread those comics so many times they they fell apart. And and this one, you know, it's in many different pieces. It's very wrinkly <laughs> and yellowed and and uh it's from 1980. Uh, and I can remember vividly pulling it off the spinner rack. So my only explanation for that, since I would only be one years old at the time, <laughs> is that <clears throat> it must have been one of those places where they just had a bunch of old comics. Mm-hmm. They weren't exactly flying off the shelves. Yeah. Um, so Man Thing, uh, Spider Man, Warlord. Yeah, Warlord. was a big one for me. <laughs> I've always loved sword and sorcery, Conan and, and Warlord alike. Uh, and and X Men during that time, some Thor, some Thing, those are those are the ones that I that I still keep from the archive. Like I've tossed a lot of comics, but I've kept mm-hmm. those original comics because I feel like I read them a hundred times each, and they imprinted themselves in my head like a fossil. <laughs> I, I do I, like the idea of Spinner Rack as babysitter. I don't, I don't want to keep it going because I'm probably gonna get to this stuff. But one of my favorite things when I was young, though, was me and my brother used to get the Overstreet Price Guide and then Wizard Magazine. Yep. And uh, we had some uh, we had some not so great uh, tw- uh, kids down at the end of the block who uh, would sometimes thieve some things. And uh, one time we were at the bus stop and they're like, "Hey, you guys like comic books, right?" And we're like, "Yeah." 
and they never liked comic books. I don't, and they're like, we got a bunch of comic books in our house. You guys should come down and buy some. <laughs> and so, so we would walk down there and we looked at them and they were good stuff. It was like Todd McFarlane, Batman stuff. And it was like his early Spider-Man stuff. Mm-hmm. And so they were kind of current at the time being a kid, but we would go and then we'd look at all of their stuff and then we'd go back and remember what we had, they had, and we'd go look it up in our wizard magazine and they just wanted like a dollar for four of them. And so we would just go down there like on a whim and just keep, keep buying them and stuff like that. And just absolutely all the good stuff in my collection came from those kids stealing their someone else's collection and then us going down and robbing them blind because they didn't know what they had. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I, every time I go through, I can still go through my, my collection and I know which ones we bought from them that I'm like, Oh man. I'm like, I, I always wonder what happened to the guy who, who had all those stolen from him. I'm like, what happened? <laughs> but yeah, that's, that's where bulk of my early collection came from. God, they fell off that diamond truck. <laughs> yeah, fell off the truck. <laughs> Don't ask questions. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, we are here primarily to talk about your AWA series, Devil's Highway, which has returned for a second volume. The first issue of this latest round came out May 11th, so you can likely still find that at your local comic shop. Issue two, as of this recording, uh, is uh, scheduled to be out June 15th. Uh, here is the blurb for the first issue uh, for the listeners. Matt, I'll let you take that one. A truck stacked with bodies is discovered along the U.S.-Canada border, and Sharon Harrow and Quentin Skinner are on the case. Their mission? Figure out how all of these corpses are connected. And when they uncover the terrifying truth, they will unearth a murder syndicate that has infiltrated the walls of the very institutions meant to protect us. Now, our heroes are on the run, hunted by law enforcement and the trucking community framed for crimes they didn't commit. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Now I let's kind of back up a little bit. How did you both get involved with uh, AWA? Ben, I know uh, you've actually had, you had a couple of their sort of early on uh, series for them between this and, and year zero. Yeah. Well, I was, you know, I made the jump from DC to Marvel mm-hmm. and in doing so Axel had hired me along with some people in the new media group, like Daniel Fink, mm-hmm. they had hired me to write the Wolverine podcast. Mm-hmm. So that came out as Wolverine, the long night. That's a 10 episode season. It was followed up by Wolverine, the lost trail mm-hmm. and Axel uh, had actually you know, he made the jump, he made the transition from Marvel to AWA during that time. I think he was only around for like one episode, the writing of one episode of Wolverine the Long Night. So here I am, you know, starting to get my feet wet at Marvel uh, through the audio sphere, weirdly enough, sort of, you know, building up that, that, that first series, but also thinking about the architecture of other series that could spin off of it. And, and meanwhile, Axel is, you know, designing AWA and we got into some early conversations and, you know, even as I started to continue to write for Marvel, not just the podcast series, but also, you know, jumping on board <clears throat> X-Force and later Wolverine and now Ghost Rider, uh, Axel, you know, wanted some creator owned stuff. Uh, so Year Zero came out of that. So did Devil's Highway. And Devil's Highway is something that Brent and I had been talking about for some time. You know, we, I think the first conversations actually uh, happened at Keys. Isn't that the name Keys of it? Cafe. Keys <laughs> Cafe. Yeah. So we usually meet up there before the Minneapolis uh, Comic Con and, you know, eat an enormous breakfast to get us through the day. And, you know, we were talking about, some different concepts to potentially collaborate on. And, uh, you know, we're both, both sort of horror heads and, and we like crime stories. And, and so we started, you know, brainstorming together and, uh, it took, you know, it probably took a year and a half for this to sort of find its, its final form. And, and Axel really wanted it to come out with that first, um, you know, slate of titles. So, that's yeah. that's the sort of prelude to the release, and I'm sure Brent has some other stuff to say about it. 
Uh, yeah. Um, I guess it kind of comes down to like when me and Ben first met, we were at this uh, Minneapolis, uh, I think it's Falcon, SpringCon. We have these two shows uh, run it locally. And uh, I was aware of Ben's work. And uh, we had, just happened to be set up across from each other over the weekend. And, uh, you know, you kind of get to know, you know, talking to each other and stuff. And I was, he gave me one of his novels, Red Moon, and I really liked it. And the next thing, you know, we're courting each other and uh, going out for breakfast. And uh, yeah, we, I think we just really connected really quick on the things we like. And we kind of got talking about uh, true crime stuff and horror stuff. And, and there was a certain kind of local story going on at the time about um, this possible, uh, this death of a college kid at the U- University of Minnesota, what they found in the, the river. And they think he just came, like fell off of a bridge when he was drunk. But there was this retired FBI agent who sort of was like, well, there's a smiley face killer theory and that they think that there's a smiley face that's near where they found his body. And uh, we got talking about it and just how bizarre that whole story is, whether you believe it or not, it's just really bizarre and it's interesting. And, uh, and we kind of just sprung off of that. And I remember we went out for drinks later and he kind of had the rough idea of it and stuff like that and we really like the idea of this uh this girl who kind of loses everything and she just kind of whatever she has left she kind of hits the open road and tries to find her her family's killer or father's killer and uh i really like that and we like to like the idea of setting it in the midwest where we lived because you know i think being midwesterners here like we kind of see i think me and ben see the world a little bit the same and like the uh the creepy gas stations and the old houses you drive by uh, mm-hmm. off the interstate that have been abandoned, you know, like you're kind of co- trying to figure out a story with those things. And I think we just clicked with that kind of stuff and it was, uh, it was ma- meant to be. Now, uh, you know, when you're in sort of the initial talks or the pitch process with, with Axel and the folks at AWA, you know, was there any sort of particular, remit or or direction uh that they gave you guys when you started you know kind of working with them uh you know the general idea remained the same but there were a few things that you know axel sort of poked us on like well what if we ramp up the tension in this way what if you know we we play around with this idea you know it was kind of like uh we 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 sort of massage the idea of Sharon Harrow over the course of a few months and yeah. she actually began as an art student um, yeah first conception of her uh, and then we tried sort of made her she was going to go from like a character who essentially was innocent to you know really dark um I guess a a, a kind of Mr. Chips to Scarface feel like he's in Breaking Bad yeah. um and instead we started her off in more of a traumatized and, and dangerous state. Uh, I guess you can compare her more now to a sort of, uh, you know, uh, Elizabeth Salander from the girl with the dragon tattoo. On yeah, her. for sure. Yeah. I remember Axel calling me up because when he first, I mean, we had molded this story for a while and you get kind of married to the concept, you know, and um, I, for me, I, I think I, Ben deals with the revision so much in the writing stage. And I think, I just said, I, I felt really strongly about it. And I remember when Axel kind of came with us and like we were going to lose the aspect of her kind of being this innocent art school kid who came home and her whole family had been butchered to more of a, we're going to more like a dysfunctional family kind of thing. And she left for the military. And I just was like, what? And, um, you know, it's one of the things I love about Axel is he, he's very easy to get a hold of and talk to, especially in the early stages of AWA. We were getting a lot of, calls and stuff like that because those first initial launches were like his baby and he just Mm -hmm. you really wanted him right and we just got talking and he brought up girl with the dragon tattoo and he got up one of my favorite denzel washington movies man on fire um it's like a the best punisher movie never made and uh (laughs) yeah and he just kind of sold it on me and i just remember being off of like i'm going in that phone call i was like i'm gonna tell him how much i don't think i want to do it like this and by the time I got off the phone call with him, I was like, I can't wait for this. You know, like he he had a really good point. And, he, and I mean, that's what makes him such a good editor is he's he can see things really quick. And, you know, sometimes that can be kind of off putting, but like it's he's usually right. So 
Um, he's been doing it for a long time. So, but yeah, I, I really embraced the changes and stuff, but he had with the story. And it really is a change that you hear over and over and over again. You know, I hear it all the time. Uh, you know, I heard it recently from some people in LA when it comes to a show pitch I was putting together and it's like, okay, you have the character moving to this point where they transform, like, look at the Americans, the FX show, the Americans, right? We don't mm -hmm. begin with the characters in Russia and observe them transitioning into American life. Mm -hmm. Instead that pilot episode, they've been embedded in America for over a decade, right? And, and they have kids and the kids don't even know their parents are Russian spies. Mm -hmm. And what we're seeing is this critical moment where their marriage is kind of falling apart and some stuff's going crazy with their career and, and, and what's going on in the espionage front and an FBI agent has moved across the street and, and, and. So it sort of takes like some third act stuff and puts them right up front. And as a result of that, the tension ratchets, you know, up immediately. And so that's essentially what Axe was doing. He's like, take your third act thing and put it right up front emotionally, and then you know, yeah, you'll grab us by the throat right away. Don't you love it when they answer the next question in the list before we even ask it? I love when that happens. <laughs> that was the that was the next question about how that change happened. So love it. No answer like an anticipatory answer. Exactly. <laughs> um, the first volume dealt a lot with uh, trucker culture. Uh, how much, I guess, time, but also how much fun was it sort of researching that uh, occupation slash community? I've always been, you know, in love with the idea of trucking. This this invisible community that's all around us. Our mm -hmm. country wouldn't function without truckers. And yet we really don't pay any attention to them or sort of recognize the, their necessity. And they have their own culture. You know, they have their own vernacular. Uh, you know, if you listen in on the CB frequencies, you won't, uh, you, you'll need subtitles. You won't be able to discern the coded language that goes back and forth. And they are aware of everything that goes on on the highway and in the interstate. Uh, you know, they'll be talking about some alligator strips, you know, a blown out tire, at this mile marker, or they'll be talking about a cop waiting at this exit ramp, or they'll be talking about some sort of dickhead who's working at the way station to be careful for, or, you know, some beautiful woman in a red convertible who, you know, is, is moved, who just uh, got onto the interstate. Like I, I interviewed a bunch of truckers. I read a bunch of their forums. I read articles, watched documentaries, YouTube videos, and as a result of that, I tried to <clears throat> sort of glean an understanding of, and uh, of uh, you know this this underworld essentially, this invisible world. Mm -hmm. What is the weirdest or most memorable thing that uh, you uncovered in that time? Well, just that there's a lot of you know there's a lot of truckers who are just family dudes doing their job, mm -hmm. uh, but there is also a lot of crime that goes on. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of drugs, you know, and some of the drugs are uppers because you want to yeah, right. drive as long as you can uh, to make that money. So there's a lot of meth. Um, there's there's also a lot of, you know, prostitution that goes on. Um, they're referred to as lot lizards. Um, and, you know, every truck stop just about has some action going on. So there's also a lot of like burglaries that occur. And, and so we're interested in that, but also the fact that the FBI believes that, you know, there's 12 or 13 serial killers currently operating tractor trailers. And it makes sense because right they're <clears throat> exposed to vulnerable populations constantly and they're anonymous uh, and constantly migratory. So it's easy to get away with that kind of stuff. Yeah. Yeah, I watched a documentary uh, going back to the lot lizard thing. There was a YouTube documentary about that. And it's like 45 minutes long and it follows these women who are, you know, prostitutes at these, you know, gas stations and stuff like that. And it was brutal to watch, you know, I mean, it's just but, you know, and almost all of their their Johns or their clientele were truck drivers. And, you know, I mean, in the 45 minutes they had guys who were just family men, but they're like, well, I'm on the road 22 out of 30 days out of the month. And, you know, I got to unwind and, you know, or there's, 
it, it, there's all these excuses and, and stuff like that. And it just, uh, it, I, it helped get me in kind of like what we were aiming for, for that kind of world and stuff, but it's tough. And I, you know, but you kind of see, you know, when you stop and you're at uh, going, I, I drive from Minneapolis to Beloit, Wisconsin to see my family about four or five times a year. And you stop and you stop at these gas stations and stuff like that, or you, these rest stops and like, I don't know if it's the artist in me that's always kind of looking for the obscure or something, you know, or that catches my eye, but you do see stuff that you're just like, man, I don't know how many other people are seeing this, but there's, you know, the girl smoking a cigarette way off in the far end of the corner of the gas, you know, under a, a, a lamp, you know, and there's no one else around, you know, and you just, you kind of hope that everything's okay with her or something like that, you know, and, but like it sticks with you a little bit longer and stuff like that. And so it's um, one of the goals, one of the goals of the series too, like in tying into what Brent's saying is, you know, to sort of pull that into the spotlight. Yeah. Kind of getting back to the behind the scenes stuff, you know, what was the communication support, et cetera, uh, like working with a new publisher that happened to launch, you know, right as the pandemic was shutting things down. Yeah, that was rough. Um, you know, I remember we did a store, I did a store signing up here with a mask on and mm-hmm. I just signed the copies, you know, and uh, I kind of didn't really stick around, but that was sure. technically a store signing. And uh, I mean, I, I think the, the book did come out on time, but like it, uh, you know, it was a little deflating, you know, you worked so hard on it, especially because we had concepted it for so long too. And you're kind of excited for this celebration that's finally out. And then you're just hoping that stores are still open long enough that they can actually sell it, you know. Um, But to that said, um, people were reading like crazy during the pandemic. And that was one thing that was kind of cool about it was how much I think AWA, I don't want to say they benefited because I still think it was a huge upward hill battle. But I think people were just hungry for content and stuff at the time and so i do think it was well embraced and i think they did a good job with what they could do you know but uh but yeah it it kind of sucked i'm not gonna lie yeah we were we were hoping to get on the road and make some noise and yeah i remember we were yeah. talking about doing like a cool road trip tour like do a couple stores and and right. shit like that yeah mm-hmm. instead we were just in our aquariums <laughs> yep. hoping that somebody found our stories and thankfully a lot of people in a lot of shops have have gotten behind AWA and seem mm-hmm. to be digging Devil's Highway. That's great. Yeah. Now, was a volume two always part of the plan? Um, cash, uh, cautiously optimistic, especially with the pandemic. We were just kind of nervous that, like, you know, I was like, I just hope AWA makes it, you know, through the jump. And, you know, things were good. And, you know, the first book was out and then the trade came out and we didn't quite have a go ahead right away for a, a second one. But then, you know, I think shortly around 2021 New Year's, we kind of got the approval and the go ahead to, to get going on it. So, um, so yeah, it was it was nice. And I, I think Bennett, if I'm right, you pitched the second concept pretty early after the book was done, right? Yeah. And, you know, in comics, you never know if you've got more than five issues ahead of you. Uh, but you always want to end volumes as a result of that in a way that feels conclusive and yet it opens up another door mm-hmm. so you know we opened up that door at the end of uh volume one with the introduction of the webmaster and the idea that there was this broader network um and and some you know larger forces that that might be guiding the syndicate so we became much more expansive and propulsive and dangerous in every way with the second volume. Now, uh, in the first issue of the second volume, uh, there's there's a little Easter egg. There's a pack of smokes sitting on a nightstand labeled Percy's. Uh, so, so Ben, how does it feel to be a line of cigarettes? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it feels great. <laughs> I already, my voice already sounds like a, the ghost of a thousand cigarettes. <laughs> You know, you know, I remember making that page and it was kind of late and I was like, all right, I got to come up with a fake name for these cigarettes. And you can't really make have a really long name for cigarettes because the packaging's so small, short. 
And so I was like, man, what can we do? And so I just, you know, I was like, Percy's a pretty short name. So that, that was the extent of it. So uh, we just added our uh, our editor, Dulce, is, uh, mm-hmm. is she she gets a shout out, I think, uh, in issue four on a, on a trailer. So she's she's pretty excited about that. So I try Brent to drop stuff in. Brent's got an Easter egg for one of his, uh, you know, graphic novels as well horror world in there it's on a billboard in the background <laughs> yep <laughs> i love I, I like dropping stuff in there i remember uh mitch garrett's used to always kind of sneak me into the punisher or anything he was drawing and i would return the favor i drew him as a dead soldier uh, uh soldier in uh holling commandos for uh-huh. shield and uh yeah i just kind of always trying to find ways to do something fun and sneak stuff in there so it's kind of fun so the artists sticking together. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so having read issue one, it feels like volume two seems to be shifting focus slightly more to Quentin. Volume one was Sharon's revenge tale, while this one seems to have more of Quentin's past catching up with him. Does that, that seem a fair assessment? Yeah, we wanted to, you know, change up the status quo, change the paradigm in so many different ways. And that, you know, I was referring before to the plot, like becoming more elevated and intense and expansive. But when it comes to the characters and their emotional life, right, Sharon's in a bad way. And and Quentin has sort of gotten his shit together, which is a reversal of fortunes when you look at the first volume. So he's laid off the booze. She's deep into it. You know, he is sort of feel satisfied with they with where they are and she feels listless she feels like she doesn't have a purpose ever since she solved the murder of her father like she's looking for a new target so over the course of the second volume you know those things those emotional circumstances get complicated further but that's sort of where you find them initially yeah. yeah i really like where skinner's story goes in this this volume and I had a lot of fun, like, I don't know how many people notice it, but I, I purposely tried to draw him a little, like, less haggard and, like, look like maybe he lost, like, 10, 15 pounds, like, he's a little skinnier in this, uh, uh this round, um, yeah, I, I, he's, he's probably my favorite character, but I, we have more characters we're introduced as this series goes on, mm-hmm. and I think my truly, my all overall favorite character comes a little more in prominence in issue three. So their their world gets expanded a little bit, and I'm uh, I'm excited for people to see that. Seeing the uh, involvement of the FBI uh, made me think about the X Files and remembering that there was a time when conspiracy theories were fun fringe things and not part of our day to day life in a frighteningly real way. Has that mainstreaming of extremist conspiracy? changed the plot of the book or was that always a part of it well i'm all for conspiracy theories like bigfoot is on the loose (laughs) and you know who you know where where did the magic bullet come from he's gonna show up in the book right man not as much of a fan of the conspiracy theories in the air right now uh and and when it comes to this book i I don't, we're, we're definitely not trying to encourage any thoughts of the deep state or anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) This is not a QAnon endorsement or anything. We're just, you know, having fun with uh, the storyline and the idea that sometimes the institutions that are meant to protect you are in fact corrupted. So much of this book is grounded and realistic for what value of realistic one exists within fiction. (laughs) Um, But one thing is I remain sort of on the fence about Quentin and these empathetic abilities he seems to have and whether or not that's something more than just him being good with people and reading them, or if there is a sort of supernatural aspect to this book. I assume that that is something you've sort of intended for the reader to be sort of questioning. Well, whenever, you know, you have a good ghost story, I think that you're wondering, is this spectral presence supernatural or is it 
a manifestation of the point of view character's wounded psyche. Uh, this isn't a ghost story, but I think that there's a similar feel to what I'm talking about in that with Quentin's abilities, right? You never actually see him predict the future. You don't see him like uh, reach into the deep well of memory and conjure somebody's, you know, bank account or phone number when they were 12 years old or, or whatever else. Like uh, instead we're sort of just like towing that line, I think, where is this just an incredibly empathetic person who's able to sort of pull clues off of people and, and anticipate things about them as a result. I think that's, that's where I'm at in writing this. This is a story that is grounded in realism. But, you know, you have heightened elements and, and in the same way in the, in this cult, in this murder syndicate, right, they have a grander belief as well. Uh, is that belief true? No more true than any other religion, right? It's what they believe. It's what they have faith in. But we never see any sort of like demons rising out of uh, yeah. an altar. We don't have, you know aliens descending from the sky we don't have fissures of hell not, not yet man not yet. <laughs> <Volume three laughs> no spoilers <laughs> so we you know we talked from the beginning about our our aesthetic being sort of more like a david fincher story mm -hmm. so if you think about it, david fincher movies he's dealing with crazy stuff but it's always you know gritty and authentic at its core now, uh, Quentin is a, a unique name, and yet you are simultaneously writing two characters with that name in two different books. Uh, in the haze of, of juggling projects, do you ever mix up your Quentins? <laughs> <laughs> Never. No, I think of Quentin Choir as Kid Omega, purely. But um, yeah, it did occur to me in writing volume two, not volume one, because I... I we began volume one, even it take, it takes longer for AWA books to come out mm -hmm. because Axel insists on everything being done before the first issue releases. And so I was actually writing Devil's Highway before I ever took on X-Force. Okay. Yeah. So the character of Quentin Skinner, you know, existed before I ever sort of grabbed the reins of Quentin Choir. Mm -hmm. Very, they couldn't be more different. No. <laughs> <laughs> be a good team up book though. Right. <laughs> hey. They, they do have sort of buddy cop opposite personalities, yes. I think Kid Omega would covet his beard. <laughs> Quentin Quire cannot grow proper facial hair. I'm sure of it. Uh, now, I, as, as of the most recent issue of X-Force, I think you can fuck around and find out with that. Ah, okay, I'm a little behind. That's right, yeah. I've got, I've got him, uh, you know, the resurrection process on Krakow. I've got Kid Omega building himself avatars. Uh, and then, you know, psychically inhabiting them and getting into mischief. So he could definitely have like a 10 foot tall, bulked out, bearded version of, of, of the Omega wandering the island. Giant pink trapezoid hanging from his face. Yes. Yes. Yeah. No, this is good. Um, it's funny, though, along those lines, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm reading Quentin Skinner and he's whipping out tarot cards uh, in issue one. And I'm like. Somewhere Teeny Howard is smiling and can't figure out why. <laughs> yeah. Sure. I really had the great idea uh, to give the issues, give the covers a tarot design. I'm yeah. really excited for people to see all of those. Yeah. Um, AWA likes to do this where the first cover for the series is like going to be the trade uh, cover. Mm -hmm. But then I wanted, I've always liked when covers sort of have a theme, especially in like mini series. Like I feel like Vertigo books kind of back in the day kind of sort of had like if it was a color thing or if it was just like a, a layout thing. But I always thought like that was cool. And I always wanted to do that when a, with a creator own book. Mm -hmm. and so last series or the first volume, we had the main number one issue. And then the next four, two through five had these sort of, silhouette imagery with like kind of monochromatic tones and i really liked how those came out 
And then when the volume two came out, I was like, well, what are we going to do to kind of keep with that, but like change it up? And so when we were, I was reading the first issue and I, he pulled out the tarot card, I was like, oh, you could do a lot of, you could have a lot of fun with, uh, with like a tarot inspired design. And so issues two through five will have these sort of almost all of our characters in like, as like read through a tarot card and stuff. And uh, it was a lot of fun. We just got to, colors on the last issue five cover um and i'm really happy with how that one turned out it's gonna be really fun i think we'll get to reveal that in about a month or so but uh but yeah it's been really fun and um just looking up all the tarot stuff for for quentin a little bit like that it kind of kind of helped give a design element theme for the for this volume which is always good um i was pretty proud like I feel like the easy thing to do is you know you just put a truck driving down the road for a book like this and i was like I want to do a whole series of books or the whole series without really drawing a, a truck. And then the volume one or the first issue, we had the trucks obviously as the flag, mm-hmm. but I don't really count those because they were kind of more of a design element. And so we've been able to do the whole thing without having just a truck driving down the road, which I'm pretty happy with. Um, generally what, uh, what itch does, does devil's highway scratch for you that uh, your other work might not? Uh, ben, why don't you go first on that one? Well, if you look at my work on Wolverine and, and X-Force and Ghost Rider, I tend to lean into interior narratives where I'll have, even in X-Force, which is a team book, I'll have assigned a point of view for each issue. Mm. So let's say it's a Beast issue. That means Beast will be narrating, right? And so you'll have those captions. And, you know, I'm a novelist, and so I bring that quality to my comics as well. So usually I'm trying to like unearth, you know, the emotional bedrock of the characters through these captions. Um, and I, so in, in writing Devil's Highway, I wanted to step away from that mode of storytelling and do something that was more cinematic. And so it leans heavily on the art you know, the exterior of the characters as a way of telling the story. It's, it's dialogue and it's watching them move around and we'll have whole pages or whole scenes go by where nobody says anything mm-hmm. and nobody thinks anything, right? We don't have those heavy captions over line. So that yeah. was really um, a nice tonal shift for me. Uh, yeah, what Ben said. No, <laughs> um, <laughs> Uh, for me, it was just um, crime. The crime genre to me is the best genre in comic books. I know it's easy to think superheroes and stuff, but um, and horror, I think, is you know obviously good. But I kind of go back to some of the old EC comics, like Crime Doesn't Pay and stuff like that, that I got a bunch of reprints when I was a kid at Woolworths Drug uh, Bookstore, Waldman's Bookstore in the mall, and. Uh, I just, I just love those and stuff. And I, I've always, I still think, uh, you know, like the, is it the fearless books with Sean Phillips and Ed Brubaker that are coming out now are just reckless. Yeah. Yeah. Reckless. Sorry. And uh, they're just the best. I just love those things and their whole body of work. And I've just always wanted to kind of have a crime series. It was a bucket list thing for me and meeting, you know, and doing it with Ben is great. Cause you know, me and Ben actually collaborate on the story. It's not just him giving me the, the story and telling me to draw it, you know, and I hope I'm not, you know, I'm not telling Ben what I want and, you know, demanding it or anything like that. It's a pretty good collaborative relationship and you don't always get that elsewhere, especially on work for hire. And sometimes it's just, here's a script. We want you to put what's on there in there. And it's a, uh, it's cool, but it's just, I don't know. And, and we have a little more laid back schedule, so I can kind of do, try some different things. I've definitely experimented more on this book with, uh, I work digitally, but uh, you know, there's all these amazing digital brushes that I can work with now and do stuff. And uh, I've had a lot of people since the book come out, they're like, man, the detail on your backgrounds and stuff is absolutely awesome. Greg Smallwood wrote me an email after he read the first volume. He was like, man, the, the detail you're putting in this stuff is incredible and it's just i don't think there's a lot of stuff that i would get to draw you know i mean grit the grim stuff but then like ben and said like you know i remember a scene where um 
Sharon goes to the the diner that her dad owned in the first volume, and there's the the you know the remnants of the crime where he got killed, and there's the layout of his body and stuff, and she lays there in his the spot that he died in, and she sees something uh, a handprint on the glass, and it's a tricky ass scene to draw and make sure that the reader because there's nothing there's no dialogue you've got to tell the reader what the hell's going on, and that was really fun. And it was really cool. And it was all on, I don't want to say it was all on me, but it was kind of on me and Nick, the colorist, to convey what's going on and move that story with no dialogue. And I love that challenge. And you don't, I don't know why, you just don't get that a lot in uh, in the work for hire superhero stuff. It's kind of, I feel like there's more of a pressure to feel like you've, does someone paid for this and you got to give every, you know, I think the writers are kind of the kings of that, in that genre. So they're not going to give you too many empty panels. So, but yeah, that's, I guess that's the answer. And to follow up on that, you know, I'm in writing for Marvel, everything is out of this world. Everything mm-hmm. is beyond belief, right? You got people who are inhabited by, you know, demonic forces. You've got interdimensional travel. You've got people, you know, using their telekinetic abilities. And so it was an antidote to that to write a story for comics that was just here in our world, embedded in it. And along with that, we made some, you know, some decisions about the style of the piece that would accompany the content. You know, how do you convey realism? well, when it comes to the cinematic qualities of it that I was referring to before, right? If you don't have like a bossy narrator, these bossy captions mm-hmm. in every panel explaining things, you sort of have to be there beat by beat by beat, right? Whereas if you look at X-Force, we might be leaping from this place to that place to this place. Whereas you sort of have to follow the character in Devil's Highway as they move from the interior you know, of a space, like looking around, sitting on the floor, looking up, like Brent said, seeing the thing on the window, going to look at the window, taking a photo, seeing footprints in the snow, following the footprints, finding another clue, right? You have this beat by beat by beat element that you wouldn't have in a Marvel comic because they want things so content rich Mm, that you're sort of racing past a lot of stuff. And this is much Mm -hmm. more patient. And then Brent had the great idea of also making the comic a grid, constantly a grid. And I think that that contributes stylistically to it being more digestible and and realistic as a result. Now, from a writing, uh, the writing perspective, how does Devil's Highway fall in the Ben Percy schedule? You know, like, where are you fitting this in between you know, Wolverine and Wolverine adjacent comics, Ghost Rider, podcast, audio drama scripts, novels, screenwriting now, uh, conventions, because you were just at one, uh, father being a dad, etc. Yeah, I'm pretty good at uh, focus. I'm pretty good at compartmentalizing things. Um, I'm not easily distracted. So usually I kind of lay out my week on a Sunday night in my head. Mm. And I also do a additional like you know reschedules every night of the week where i'm like before i'm settling towards bed you know i pour those two fingers of whiskey you know maybe i get ready to read a book or watch a show or whatever but then i'm like what am i doing tomorrow Hmm. and and usually what i'm doing tomorrow is any number of things i might say okay from 7 30 a.m to noon i'm working on the novel i'm gonna eat lunch, walk the dog. When I get back at the desk, I'm working on the outline for this comic. Uh, Or I might say, okay, I'm working on this short story for these Monday through Wednesday constantly. Mm. Or I might say, all right, you know, Monday, Tuesday, I'm writing this issue of X-Force. Hopefully I'll get it done. If not, I'll push to Wednesday as well. But, you know, in other words, what I'm constantly doing is just figuring out time slots and, and what I'm going to immerse myself in. So it, it has everything to do with deadlines, but it also has everything to do with like, where am I feeling the electricity at the moment? Sure. And sometimes, you know, things can get hairy. I 
feel like I'm in a good place right now, you know, but January, February, March, uh, I was working 16 hour days and, uh, you know, I, to finish this one, this, this last novel, like I even pulled an all nighter, which I hadn't done in a long, long time. And I realized I'm not 20 years old anymore. Mm -hmm. Uh, That took like four days to recover from. Um, but, but yeah, like sometimes you just get crushed. And you work your way through it. And now I'm in a good place where, you know, if I hang up the laptop at 4.30, 5 o'clock every day, uh, I'm good. Uh, I'd rather not open up my laptop again at 8 o'clock or 9 o'clock. But sometimes you got to. But, you know, that's that's generally how things go for me is like just grinding hard on all this work and figuring out how to like bring one thing into focus while sort of like keeping the other thing just on deck, ready to go. So Brent, uh, we talked about, you know, the research on truckers, but yeah, I'm curious how much research you do on trucks. Oh on yeah. <laughs> the actual illustration. And yeah. then there's a follow-up after that. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah. You know, I mean, you kind of don't want to be, I remember like, my first Marvel gig was on the Punisher with Mitch and uh, he did this crazy costume that was very uh, contemporary U S soldier specific with a lot of pockets and just everything. And he was, he ordered all of this stuff and he would take photos of it and, you know, and he just, it looked great, but I didn't have that stuff. So he kind of sent me some photos and stuff, but he's like, you know, and just be careful because, man, he's like, these soldiers, they pay attention and stuff. And and I, I, I quickly learned, like, you know, the truck drivers, they want to know if it's a Freightliner or a Peterbilt or a Kentworth or a Volvo or an International or whatever it is. And so I tried to do the best I could, you know, and, you know, the most common ones are Freightliners. And so you'll see most of those. But when you're drawing a scene where it's kind of heavy trucks, you, you're just like, well, we better put a Peterbilt or something in there just to change it up or an oil rig or something like that. Um, and yeah, I, it's just with the interiors too, are the bit very specific thing, like the cabs making sure, you know, they're double backed and stuff like that. So I, I, I tried to learn and it's like the economic status, you know, the guys have been doing it for a long time. They got like the big baller one and that's got the big, you know, looks like you could do an episode of cribs <laughs> in the back <laughs> You know, and so, um, so yeah, it was, there was a lot of studying and, and stuff like that to make sure that, you know, I could fake it till it make it a little bit, hopefully. So the follow-up to this is which required more research, the trucks or the snakes? Cause you're also growing oh, a hell of a lot of snakes. Yeah. Yeah. A lot of snakes. Um, the good thing is there's no real rhyme or reason to the snakes. You can kind of just draw cool snakes. <laughs> so, um, yeah, but I, I, there is a lot of snake stuff and I hate snakes. I, li- oh God, I really hate snakes. So this was uh, the issue three of uh, the first volume. There's a whole, the cover is this inside the silhouette of the trucker, uh, the evil trucker that we never really see um, is Sharon just covered in snakes. And I, all the reference shots I tried to find of, someone I, I just put someone covered in snakes and that was just like the worst google image search i could ever like have for myself i was like oh god i hate this so but uh how much of it was getting scripts. <laughs> yeah but but i i hope i'm like if it makes me crawl i hope i think having a fear or a dislike of snakes is pretty common so i hope that people get it and i know uh We've got a pretty awesome scene coming up with Skinner and a snake. They get very, very close to each other. So, uh, yeah, I'm, uh, I'm looking forward to people seeing that one. Uh, now, you mentioned, uh, actually, you know what? Hold off on that one. Uh, we did get one uh, Twitter question that I wanted to ask here. Uh, one yeah. of our Patreon supporters, Robert Secundus, asked, uh, he wanted to know uh, either of your favorite movies and or books prominently featuring trucks. Yes. Well, I, you know, was really impacted by that Steven Spielberg story, Duel, uh, mm-hmm. which is based on the Richard Matheson short story of, you know, and it's just this, this faceless trucker pursuing a guy relentlessly. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and and it's a very simple premise and it sort of has the same kind of effect as as halloween in a way because it's just you know you you keep he keeps looking in the rear view he keeps thinking he's escaped but then slowly perilously here comes the truck again um and and yeah that had that really scared the hell out of me as a kid um uh but then you know there's the more the more aspirational and fun over the top right in which sylvester stallone is is not only trucking around the usa but you know kicking ass on the arm wrestling, arm wrestling for his son <laughs> um i wish i could say i had read a lot of books um revolving it involving it but i haven't i i i, I I remember the Richard Matheson one, but I honestly, I can't sit there and say it was like, it left an impression on me, even though I, I now that Ben says, I'm like, I gotta go back and read that. Cause I'm a huge fan of Richard Matheson from a movie standpoint. There's a couple movies that I liked. Um, it's not trucks, but there's a great Peter Fonda movie with Warren Oates called race with the devil. It's a seventies movie. And it's these two guys that are taking their favorite ladies out on a, in a Winnebago. <laughs> And they just so happen to stumble on there in a, a park for the night charging up. Um, a cult is out in the woods uh, doing a human sacrifice. Mm. It's a very 70s movie. Yeah. And they see them see what, you know, that they're doing this human sacrifice. So they follow them along on their road trip and they uh, are trying to, you know, get after them. And there's snakes, like they plant snakes in the Winnebago. And the thing is, I had I didn't even see this movie until I think we were working on like issue three of volume one. And I just remember it was on one day and I just remember calling Ben like, did you ever see this movie? Because it's fucking awesome. <laughs> and it totally fits with our book. Um, and then there was a 90s movie called or early 2000s movie called Joyride that I thought was really good. Right. Um, and Dan Decane. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, that was just, uh, you know, two guys getting not a cb radio screwing with a with a truck driver mm. and fooling them into thinking that they were a, a pretty lady at a hotel and uh things go bad and i just you know ne- and the thing i loved about that is you never see the truck driver in that movie and i was just like i loved it and so yeah there's a couple i mean you could bring up maximum overdrive the stephen king movie that was a little hokey but with the green goblin on the front and, yeah uh, <laughs> Yeah, but uh, I would say Joyride and uh, Race with the Devil, or even though that one's not even a truck, those those stick out to me as some some sweet um, kind of road rage-ish sort of stories that uh, that I liked. Now, uh, Brent, you already mentioned uh, you know Brubaker and Phillips, but I did want to dig into a little bit of uh, crime comics. If you had any other uh, particular favorites, oh man. Um, yeah, you put me on the spot now i'm like what is it uh, uh torso by bendis is probably one of my favorite books ever um i love that book and powers was great because it kind of was a crime story with a nod to the superhero stuff um nick Velarde, who is colors this book colored powers so that was cool um i just yeah uh, i would say um dave david lampham uh his stuff is always great um so uh, yeah those are just off the top of my head are the ones that i can think of but uh you know when I, I think of everything i just think of criminal fatal all the great stuff that those guys did together um i'm actually in the middle of a reread of all their stuff now and i just uh oh the hollywood one um the fade yeah, out that out. was stellar mm-hmm. just okay. so good and so um yeah the, 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 i can't not think of their stuff when i think of it but yeah, Ru Baker Phillips are that's my favorite team in comics. Uh, and just to add to Brent's great list, uh, hundred bullets. Yeah. Oh God, a lot of fun. If you haven't and have the chance to, the the second of the oversized Martini editions of Darwin oh. Cooks, yeah, yeah, Parker dropped two weeks ago, yeah. and it's got an original Ru Baker and. Phillips in there. Yeah, I haven't oh, gotten a chance to read it yet because I just got my copy last week, but I can't wait. Those I, Parker books, books, I just Parker finished books. Hunter. I just finished the, the first Parker novel and I was oh. in Orlando this past weekend. 
I did a reread of those in, towards the end of last year, and I, I forgot how great Slayground was. Super simple, just a criminal stuck in an amusement park in the winter with a bu- like a mu- bunch of mob guys coming after him, and he just <laughs> it's being hunted, and he just uses that amusement park to his advantage. It's like so simple, but so good. Loved it. <laughs> All right. Uh, penultimate question here. Uh, what are you gentlemen both reading right now? Well, I mentioned I just finished the, the Parker novel, hmm. the first Parker novel, but I've got actually a lot of crime on on my list coming up. Uh, I'm just leaning into that genre right now as a reader and as a writer. But the book that I was reading on the plane ride home is uh, Joe Hill's 20th Century Ghosts. Um, that was his first book. And it has some really nasty, beautiful stuff in it. Nice. Uh, I just read the second issue of uh, Holt Grand Design, which was oh, awesome. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's great. Like, kind of gives a really cool overview of the Holt's history. He's my favorite Marvel. He's my favorite character in general, and kind of like superhero character, I guess. Um, and then I'm actually reading. Um, my wife just gave it to me, but it's a, it's a, autobiography. Uh, it's the history of dazed and confused the movie it's called all right all right all right and uh i'm about 40 pages into it and uh yeah it's pretty good so confession i have not seen dazed and confused what oh my god we gotta fix that every summer we every summer since we 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 uh put up our screen projector and uh we just have parents night and we put it we play that and we uh in the backyard and have a little grill out and that's a good time. So you have to make it up for it. So (laughs) (laughs) that does sound like a nice time. Well, uh, gentlemen, uh, final question uh, before we release you back into the world, Uh, how can people follow you online and keep up with devil's highway and all the various uh, individual projects that you're both uh, working on? You can find me on all the embarrassing social media platforms where I reluctantly post every now and then. <laughs> ben loves social media. It's his favorite. Brett <laughs> <laughs> uh. and I sometimes send, you know, sort of sh- shade back and forth uh, via text about about different posts on social media or the way that different people are responding to different issues just because we're, we're big meanies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, I, I am the same. I'm a uh, B Scooney art on Instagram. And then it's just at Brent Schoonover on Twitter. Um, Facebook, uh, you, there really isn't a lot going on there, but, uh, and then I have a, just a website, Brent where you can sign up for a, a newsletter where I try to, um, I try to get like exclusive stuff on there when I post on my newsletter, like, uh, I'm doing a Captain America graphic novel that's going to be out next year. I I'm trying to do like early preview pages of the graphic novel through my newsletter. So I try to make that one the, the special one. Cause if you're going to my website to sign up for it, I feel like, uh, you know, it's a little more unique than just a follow on anything else. So, so yeah. Right, right on. And uh, just real, real quick for uh, listeners. I was talking to Brent about this before we went on, but uh, he's got a design on his website for a uh, kind of floral print style shirt that is basically the Pepe Silvia meme from It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia. You got to <laughs> check it out. It's fantastic. Um, oh, thank you. <laughs> uh, Brent, Ben, that's all we have for you. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Hey, thank you really guys. appreciate it. Thanks for the appreciate conversation. That's it for this week's show. As a reminder, WMQ&A is part of Comics XF where you can find this podcast along with our sister podcast, Battle of the Atom. Chris is on Infinite Earths and Bat Chat with Matt and Will, co-hosted by Matt Lazowitz and our bud Will Nevin. Uh, P.S. Matt and Will, sorry I made you read White Knight again. You can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, Amazon Music, Audible, and at ComicsXF.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, shoutouts on the podcast, and a free comic in the mail for my collection. A $2 donation gets you a slot in the Comics XF staff picks. A $3 donation gets you access to our new bonus podcast, Our Son Pete, a deep dive into the appearances of British mutant super spy Pete Wisdom, and a $50 donation lets you advertise on the show. 
Big thanks to our patrons, Charlie Davis from the Match Club podcast, Robert Secundus from ComicsXF.com, Carla Pacheco from Marvel Spider-Woman series, Kat Purcell from ComicsXF, Liz Large from ComicsXF, Will Nevin from ComicsXF, and Asimov Fangirl, a.k.a. the Loyalist Content Consumer. You can follow WMQ&A on Twitter at WMQComics, me at Daniel P. Grote, Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013, and ComicsXF at ComicsXF. And until next week, remember, the Forceworks character Sentry was apparently part of Combo Man. WMQA.